Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to turn with me in your copies of scriptures to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We'll read the first 17 verses. Now I pray that our hearts will be praising the Lord this morning for His excellence, greatness, for all that He is. And amazing that we can continually come to God's Word over and over and over again, time and time again, and it meets us exactly where we are. It speaks a word to us in our varied circumstances, in our varied things that are going on in our lives. God's word comes and speaks to us the word that we need to hear. And so I believe it's no different today. God's brought us to Exodus 20, particularly today, verses 4 through 6, for a particular reason, for a particular purpose, to do His work in us through His Word as He always does. So may we have hearts that are ready, willing to hear, receive this Word from God today. Would you stand with me as I read these first 17 verses of Exodus 20? Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, grant that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind, nor willfully seek darkness, nor have our minds lulled to sleep, but may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule And dwell in us until you gather us into eternal glory. Where there is reserved for us eternal rest. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. may be seated. Before there was... Home Depot, or Lowe's, or Menards. I remember a locally owned store in the town where I grew up called West Side Building Supply. And they had a slogan, which they put in big letters on the sign outside the front of their store. These words were even bigger than the name of their company. These big yellow words said this, the do-it-yourself center. Remember, this is even before the whole do-it-yourself craze on social media. For someone like me, those words do not usually draw me into that store. They keep me away. I'm not the handiest tool in the shed. I can do a few things around the house, but I am not, and my wife would attest to this, I am not a do-it-yourselfer. And yet I wonder how many people might see that slogan and it might draw them into the store. They might say, "Uh, yes, I want to do it myself. Maybe people get excited to do it themselves. Maybe they look forward to it. They have a great desire. They would even say, that sounds fun. I don't understand those people, but they are out there. Could it ever be, though, that people approach the gathering of the church this way, with a do-it-yourself mentality towards worship? That the favorite song that they want sung is not a hymn or a spiritual song, Rather, it's that song, I Did It My Way, by Frank Sinatra. And are we ever lulled into thinking that such approach might be acceptable? What is do-it-yourself worship? It's worshiping God by doing what 
you want rather than how God has prescribed worship of Him to be done. It's a make it up as you go along, whatever works kind of worship. And I believe that church in the West has done a great disservice because I think this is so often what we communicate to people. Come in here and it'll be a do-it-yourself kind of worship. Whatever you want, whatever makes you feel comfortable, whatever you like, you can have that here. But God communicates to us and says, it really matters how you worship Him. Because He determines what brings glory to Himself. We don't decide that. God decides that. And how we worship is a direct reflection on who He is. And so we want to be telling the truth about God. That's what's at stake. A do-it-yourself worship could worship God in a way that he has not prescribed, in a way that he does not want, in a way that does not glorify him, and it's not telling the truth about who this God really is. Do-it-yourself worship is concerned about your preferences, about what fits your tastes, about what you think is meaningful it's convenient, and what so many people like doesn't ask too much. It comes with this evaluation. Did I like worship today? When really, I'm sorry to say, it doesn't matter if you like worship today. The better question is, was our God worshipped today and was our worship pleasing and acceptable to Him? Self-willed worship of God is not true worship of God. And this is where the second of the ten words comes to redirect and reframe our hearts around the truth of who God is. Last week, we studied the first word and asked this question, who do you worship? The answer was simple and undeniable. There is only one true God. We will have no other gods, no other false gods, no other so-called gods before us. And whatever we make out to be a God steals our heart away from the one true God. He is to have our whole heart. He is to have everything, our devotion, our loyalty, our allegiance. All that we are is to be His. He is to have first place in our hearts and we are to kill all other false gods that would try to usurp Him or divide our hearts against Him. And with that crucial, crucial word in place, who do you worship, now comes this second word on its heels with another very important question, how do you worship? So, who do you worship? Now, how do you worship? And specifically, how do you worship God? The prohibition here, which probes into our hearts, is this 
prohibition against using a carved image or fashioning a likeness of something and then saying, this represents God. And then you begin to worship that idol or perhaps even those idols as the one true God. Take, for example, what happens with the Israelites around Mount Sinai a little bit later in the book of Exodus. Exodus 32, verses 4 and 5. We read this. And he received the gold from their hand. So this is Aaron receiving the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast, and listen carefully, he says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He uses God's name, Yahweh, and he says, These, This idol, this golden calf that we've made is a representation of the Lord. Now we're going to worship this carved image. And that's what we're being warned against here specifically. Seeking to worship the Lord through a graven image. And so we have a prohibition against using an image to represent God in our worship. But even a broader prohibition, we are prohibited against worshiping idols in general. We should not worship idols of any kind. And let's just take stock in that for a moment. Is that really a problem? Idolatry? I mean, has that been a concern in your life this week? Let us not think that somehow we are not prone to this today. That somehow we are above this, we are beyond this. I mean, we're modern people. We're not like these Israelites. Idolatry is alive and well. And so, even this word, even this commandment, addresses what we could struggle with or be prone to. And there's a reason why God puts it second. He knows, he knows our hearts. He knows that we are tempted in this direction. And let us not be so naive to think that idols will not attempt to snuff out the true worship of God. We are prone to worship God as we choose rather than how he demands. And look at what it says here. Just highlight this for a moment in your mind. Verse 4, you shall not make what? For yourselves. You see why this is so dangerous? You shall not make for yourselves. They weren't making this for God. They weren't making this because they loved God, because they wanted to worship God. They were doing this all for themselves. You shall not make for yourselves. You see the heart direction of these people. It was selfish, self-motivated, self-loving, all about themselves, all about getting what they wanted. They weren't doing this because they had a concern of worshiping God the way that he wanted them to worship him. Is 
Is it any different today? Worshiping for yourself rather than worshiping God. And so our text warns us. It really comes with one warning this morning, but there are two reasons why we need to heed this warning. And so this is your outline and your bulletin. If you want to follow along, you can do that there. But number one, here's the warning. Beware of worshiping an idol. And then the reason why we need to heed this warning, because you will limit the limitless God. Beware of worshiping an idol because you will limit the limitless God. One of the early church fathers lived around 300 A.D. Augustine defined idolatry in this way. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. Hear that again. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. And herein lies the danger of this second word. Whatever is fashioned or engraved or carved or sculpted, be it wood, stone, clay, or gold, these were all created by God for our use in this world. They were not meant to be worshipped. And when we fashion these images, the likenesses of God, we are seeking to use God, control Him, manipulate Him. We begin to think that God is manageable, that He is mutable, that we can change Him. And that somehow our pea-brained minds can understand Him enough so much that we can say, you want to see what God is like? Here, let me make something that shows you what God is like. All visual representations of God are personally offensive to Him. And I think we struggle with this today because we live in a very visual society. There are images everywhere. Drive down the street, turn on the TV, pull out your phone. We are people who are stimulated visually. I mean, how many of us, if we're honest, we would rather watch the movie than read the book? <laughs> God is to be worshipped without the aid of visual, visible representations. And what does it do? What's at the heart of this? If we take a graven image or an idol and try to worship the Lord through this image, it blurs the line of distinction between the creator and the creature. Do not make a likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. These are three various spheres or realms in the world in which we live. And it was common among pagan people to create gods over these different realms. 
in our world. And so Egypt could have a, a sky god and an earth god and a water god that they would have worshipped. And Yahweh says, do not divide me up. Don't you dare say that any of these creatures that I have created can fully capture my essence and tell the truth about who I am. It is a great sin to subject the, inc the incomprehensible God to human understandings and limitations. And that's exactly what we do if we make carved images of God. He is the eternal, infinite, almighty, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient God of the universe who created everything out of nothing by the word of his power. And you think that you're going to be able to depict this God, Yahweh, with a carved image or an idol? This is why we can't define the majesty of God. Hebrews, at the very beginning, says Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty, and that word majesty is capitalized, saying majesty means God. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Psalm 93 says the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. What is this majesty like? We, we can't define it. We can't put it in a box we can't say God's majesty extends so far but no farther. To make an idol is to mock God's majesty. In fact, here are the Israelites encamped and coming to Mount Sinai, hearing these words from God, and they were experiencing worship as it should be in these moments. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 12. Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 12. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. What are the Israelites experiencing? They are not experiencing the form of God so as to make a visible representation of his image. But what? They are hearing the sound of his voice, his word, come to them. There is no form at Mount Sinai for them to hold on to all they had was the word of God. And that, dear brothers and sisters, that's what we're to build, fill with our minds with if we are to truly worship God. We must saturate our minds and our hearts with what God has revealed to us about himself in his word. But there are some who would rather worship God of their own imagination, a God that they make up, a pretend God, a God that fits into their mold of who they would like God to be or how they would like God to act. And they begin to say things like this. I don't think God would ever do that. I like to think about God this way. I imagine God to be 
I could never believe in a God who... Dear brother and sister, graven images of God are wrong and bad and sinful, but mental graven images of God are just as bad and dangerous and sinful. J.I. Packer says this, no statement starting, this is how I like to think of God, should ever be trusted. An imaginary God will always be quite imaginary and unreal. We must not treat God like our own personal Buffet. You ever been to a buffet? What do you do? You go through the line? Oh, I like a little bit of this, like a little bit of this, like a little bit of this. I don't like that. I'm not going to get any of that. And would we ever do that with God? I like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, I don't like that. So I'm not going to touch that. What box have you put God in? Is he only just love? Is he only just wrath? Is he in any way weak? Is he limited? Are you worshiping God as he has revealed himself in his word, or are you worshiping an imaginary God? quite unreal in every way. This has an effect on you. This has an effect on us. The, the logic of creating an idol has devastating effects on our hearts. In fact, listen to what it says in Isaiah 44. If you have your Bibles, just turn with me for a moment. Isaiah 44. starting in verse 12 of Isaiah 44. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength, and, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns on the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. What's Isaiah saying there? This kind of idolatry is ludicrous. Who would ever do this? You're going to take a block of wood and you're going to cook a meal over part of it, and the other part you're going to take and you're going to make an idol. 
And the danger is what Psalm 115 says, Psalm 115, 8. It says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. If you trust in an idol, if you make an idol, you become like them. What are these idols like? They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have mouths but they do not taste. They have hands but they can do no action. They have feet but they do not walk. The idols are dead and lifeless and all those who trust in them or make them are dead and lifeless just like those idols. It's dangerous because it diminishes God. But it also diminishes us. You hear these words here? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, etc., etc. You hear those words, a carved image or likeness. Where else do we hear those kind of words in the Bible? Well, we hear them right at the very beginning of the Bible, don't we? God makes man in his own image and after his own likeness. We don't need to create images because God has already done it through the creation of mankind. We are those who are to represent him, his rule, and his reign, and are to spread his glory over all of the earth. Here's what one pastor says about this. He says, we are looking for him, his, oh, I'm sorry, we are looking for God's image where it doesn't exist. That is idolatry. And we are ignoring God's image where it does, again, uh, does exist in sins against our neighbor. You ever think about that? Or, are you looking for God in places where he doesn't exist, but you're missing the fact that we are created in the image of God. We are to love our neighbor. And yet we know that this image is marred through the fall of Adam and Eve but there is one who has come who is a better image. In fact, he is the image supreme, the only image in whom we are to look. But this image is not a graven image. It's not an idol. It's the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. That's what was read for us this morning. This is what Paul says. He is the, what, image of the invisible God. He is the icon of the invisible God. Or Hebrews says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's why Jesus says, if you want to see the Father, you, you see me, you've seen the Father. This is why the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How is it that we look to Jesus? We look to him with eyes of faith, don't we? We say, Jesus, we believe in you. We trust you. We look to him by believing the word of God, which tells us about him. Everything that we need to know about Jesus is right here in the Bible. We read and search the scriptures because they tell us about Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus that we see the limitless God 
put on display before our eyes. I mean, think about the ministry of Jesus on earth. Healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead to life, even being raised from the dead himself. He's giving us true worship. True worship through himself. Number two. Beware of worshiping an idol because you will despise the limitless love of God. Beware of worshiping an idol because you will despise the limitless love of God. Verse 5 goes even further than verse 4. Verse 4 tells us not to make a graven image, but verse 5 goes right to the heart. What is our heart posture? You shall not bow down to them or serve them. These external actions are to reflect an inner heart reality. We are warned against giving our hearts to these idols, to submitting ourselves to them. And how I fear that some might say to themselves, well, this is pretty easy. Because I've never bowed down to anything or to anyone. I haven't served anything or anyone else, so don't worry about me. I haven't broken this commandment. But let, it, let us put it in light of Psalm 95, which says this, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before who? Before the Lord, our maker. We are not to bow down to these idols, but we are to bow down to the Lord. We are to serve Him with reverence and awe. And we are given the very reason why bowing down to idols or serving them is so egregious in God's sight. It is because God is a jealous God. Do you ever think of God according to this truth? That he is jealous? Or a word that's closely related to it, he is zealous? We have to see that this is a relational word. God is jealous for those with whom he has a relationship. Later in Exodus 34, we read this, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous because his relationship with his people is so close, it's so tight-knit that who they are and the way they live either glorifies him or spurns him. He is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his holy name. And anything that would drag his name through the mud, anything that would detract Anything that would diminish him or make him small, anything that would lie about him is an abomination in his sight. This is a covenantal word. It's saying that he is jealous, and we see this again in this marital marriage type of wording. Like a wife who would bring in another man into her house and into her bed right before the eyes of her husband 
such a defiling and disgusting act. And we would say the husband has a right to be jealous. Something would be wrong if he wasn't jealous, even zealous, for him to say, no, this will not happen in my house. God is rightly jealous and acts upon his jealousy. And we have to remember that God's jealousy is always perfect. It's always righteous. It's without any stain whatsoever. God is a jealous God because idolatry is adultery. We see in his jealousy, God will not tolerate idolatry. He will not allow a lie about him to be spread. He will not be limited by the mind of finite man. He will not tolerate worship that does not meet his demands. And so what does he do? How does he act upon this jealousy? You see this here. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. It's the first way that he acts. Some might cringe at this thought. They don't like it. They say, how can the Lord hold accountable these other generations that had nothing to do with this sin? And how many might want to reject this truth that is taught to us about the Lord right here? But let us think clearly about what's being said. First, there is a danger that the sins of one generation will affect other generations. How often do we like to think that my sin will just affect me and nobody else? That I can contain it. No one else might be hurt. Our sins, your sins, can have devastating effects that go on into the future. We do not take this sin or even sin in general and understand it rightly if we do not see or are willing to see the horrific consequences it can have far beyond us in our children, in our children's children, in our children's children's children. Do not underestimate the power of sin. In fact, one author says, a holy Christian is always sensitive to the power of sin. And so we run away from sin. We flee it. But there's also an assumption, I think, that sometimes people make with this verse. Some might think, well, these third and fourth generations, they're innocent. They didn't do it. Why are they being punished? Why is the Lord visiting the iniquity on these third and fourth generations if they didn't do it? And I think it's wrong for us to assume that they aren't guilty in the sin. That they've been discipled this way. That the fathers have passed on their sin to their children and their children to their children. To think that to the third and fourth generation that they've persisted in this idolatry. In fact, we see this in God's Word. You can go to the book of First and Second Kings with a king named Jeroboam. Jeroboam set up golden calves in the northern tribe of Israel, and what happens? People continued to walk in the way of Jeroboam over and over and over again. For future generations, they continued in the idolatry. 
And so let us not think that these third and fourth generations are somehow innocent. And I think we see that spelled out here at the end of verse 5, of those who hate me. That's what this idolatry, that's what this worship of graven images shows. It shows an utter hatred of God. They're not doing this because they love God. They do this because they hate God. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, says this, an image lover is a God hater. Image worship is a pretended love to God. And I wonder if wonder if that would strike a chord with us where these image lovers are able to point to what they're doing and say, look how much I love God. Look how much I worship Him. When all the while they're hating Him. It might look to others like they love God. It might look to others like they're worshiping God. But they're just pretending. They're posing. They're not really loving God the way that he, he is meant to be loved. They're not really worshiping God the way that He is supposed to be worshiped. They're not loving God. They're hating God. And so we can't say, well, it's just a little error. It's an assault on God. On the heel of the bad news comes the good news. A very dark picture is painted at the end of verse 5. But then we come to verse 6. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And what I love about these two verses is how God communicates his heart's desire is to show his steadfast love to his people. Why would I say that? Because when he talks about visiting the iniquity of the sin to the third and fourth generations, it's in the singular. But when he talks about showing his steadfast love to thousands, it's in the plural. He's limiting the visiting of the sin and the iniquity, but his steadfast love is to abound and to grow and to never end and to go on for thousands and thousands of generations. Oh, brother and sister, would you see some hope here that one generation of faithful Christians, one generation of Christians who love Jesus with an undying love, one generation of Christians who give themselves to Him as living sacrifices daily, who take up their cross and follow Him, can have an effect on thousands and thousands of generations into the future. How much do we sell ourselves short That God's love, His limitless love, would go on to those who love Him and would keep His commandments. This is the steadfast love that never gives up, that is unbreaking, that is undying, 
that endures forever. And this is the steadfast love that the Lord gives to those with whom he is in this covenant relationship with. Because he has captured their hearts and so they want to say, they want to show that they love him. I want to be very careful as we talk about this. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 21 for a moment. As we come to a close, go into our time around the Lord's table. Revelation 21. As we think about these warnings of worshiping idols, graven images, pretend gods, Christians are not idolaters. How do I know that? Because of what it says in Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Christians, true Christians, are not idolaters. Yet if you turn back a few pages to the end of 1 John, we are not idolaters. But listen to what it says, the last few words from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. After he goes through his whole book, he ends on this note. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear brother and sister, dear Christian, we are not idolaters, but we are prone to the lure of idols. For John tells us, keep ourselves from idols. They will want to capture our hearts. They will want to take us away from the Lord. They will want to produce in us a do-it-yourself kind of self-willed worship. But keep yourselves from them. Jesus talked with a woman at a well in John 4. And they had a discussion about worship. She was a Samaritan woman and she said, your people, the Jews, say that we're supposed to worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. Our people say that we're supposed to worship here on this mountain of Samaria, which is true. If you remember what Jesus says, he says, the time is coming and it now is when all true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Here is what Jesus is pointing this woman to. He is pointing her to everlasting, eternal worship. That's the true worship of God. Graven images, idols, those all point to the temporary here and now. Jesus is coming and he is saying that, he says, I am giving the life-giving power and if you have fellowship 
with me and the truth that I proclaim, you will have worship that is not around a mountain in Jerusalem or a mountain in Samaria, but you will have a worship that endures forever because this will be a worship of me and of God, the way that you were created to worship. And so then, with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we find the full meaning of what it is to truly worship God. Is that where you find the true meaning of how to worship God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Use it in our hearts and lives. Open our ears to receive it, our eyes to see it. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who realizes they've been trying to have a do-it-yourself kind of worship, that today we would repent of that, we would turn from that. If there's anyone here today who says, I don't know what it is to worship Jesus, that the day would be the day that they turn from their sin, put their faith and trust in Him. And that they would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. They would be changed from God-haters to God-lovers. Through the power of the cross, where Christ sacrificed Himself so that we might be saved and forgiven and where he rose again from the dead so that we might be justified and all of our sins atoned for perfectly. Father, we ask that your word would continue to have its perfect work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.